Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church on this Memorial Day, 2009. As you can tell from the slides I have up on the screen, one of our one thing we focus on Memorial Day weekend is to remember those who have fought and made the ultimate sacrifice in order that we can enjoy the freedoms that we have so that we can enjoy the all of the things that we enjoy in life simply because they were willing to give their lives that our freedoms might be preserved. Today we're also going to honor Jonathan Few because he's graduating from high school this next week and he has already uh, enlisted in the United States Air Force and he will be, when do you report for duty? In September. So he has three more months to fortify his soul before he goes off (laughs) into the Air Force. We come together on Sunday morning to worship the Lord as a body of believers and to corporately worship him. Scripture teaches that there are certain ways that God has always set forth, required that people, or certain conditions that people meet whenever they come to worship him. The Old Testament, there were a variety of sacrifices. There were different rituals for cleansing, all of which pointed by Uh, It's symbolism to a reality we have in the church age, and that is that we are to be in fellowship with the Lord. We're to worship him by means of the Spirit and by means of truth, and that means that we must be in right relationship to God. That starts by, first of all, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Once you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that instant you are justified, you're regenerated, you have eternal life, You enter into God's royal family as one of his children. And from that point on, uh, you can still sin, though. And when we sin, we're out of fellowship. We don't lose our salvation, but we have our the enjoyment of our relationship with God is hindered because of that sin. And so Scripture says we are to confess our sins because God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the way we prepare for worship, the way we prepare for uh, our spiritual life, recovery in our spiritual life, is to take time to make sure that we're in fellowship through confession of sin, that we may continue to grow, and that we may come to the Lord in worship under his conditions and not, not ours. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, on this Memorial Day weekend, we are indeed reminded that the freedom that we have to assemble, to worship you, to freely teach your word with all that it implies, because there have been those who have given their lives for our freedoms. They have died on battlefields from Valley Forge all the way up to Fallujah. Father, we pray that we might not take our freedom lightly. But the freedom that we have in our nation, 
is a reflection of a greater freedom that we have. And that greater freedom is the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ because he died on the cross for our sins. Scripture says that it was for freedom that he has set us free, that on the cross he paid the penalty for sin so that the power of the sin nature would be broken. And it is only through faith alone in Christ alone, only through trusting him, that we have freedom from that which is the ultimate tyranny, which is our sin nature. And so, Father, we come together this morning to worship you because we know that we have true liberty in our soul because of the freedom that we have in Christ. And we gather together in order to honor and praise you for all that you have done for us in providing us with this freedom, and we exercise it in order to worship you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Amen. Please stand as we sing the first hymn this morning, number 572, America the Beautiful, number 572. Please stand. The scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 6. If you want to read along with me, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and I will begin in verse 15. This chapter, Paul has shifted his topic in Romans from justification to sanctification of the spiritual life, and he is asked, he asks in this chapter two rhetorical questions. The second of these is, is in verse 15. The focus on this is on the freedom that we now have in Christ. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered." And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's stand together for our second hymn, number 279, Faith of Our Fathers, number 279. Please stand. In the church age, the Lord Jesus Christ established the church for the purpose of teaching his word throughout all the nations, through the Ministry of evangelism, taking the gospel to all the peoples in the world, plus teaching all that Jesus taught 
all that is in the Scripture, the Great Commission is fulfilled. The way the logistics for the Great Commission are fulfilled are through the individual support of believers all over the world who give unto the Lord to support the ministry of God's Word, both in their local church as well as through missions. Giving is not some way to gain God's blessing, but is a reflection of our appreciation for all that God has done for us. But it also expresses our desire to see that the Word of God is taught, that all that is needed by missionaries, by those in the local church in order to fulfill that mission, are provided for. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for all that we have. You have given us such a wonderful, tremendous life. You've given us such a tremendous spiritual life. You've given us everything we need. And, Father, that which we give now is simply a token of our appreciation, our gratitude for all that you have done for us, and in a desire to support the teaching of your word both here at West Eastern Bible Church as well as abroad through missionaries. And so we give these gifts as unto you for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we get started in our study of God's word this morning, let's just bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. In his high priestly prayer the night before he went to the cross, our Lord prayed to you, Sanctify them in truth, or by means of truth, thy word is truth. Earlier he had said, You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is not any kind of freedom. It is the true freedom of spiritual freedom, freedom from sin, freedom from the penalty of death. And so it is through your word that we are set free initially at salvation, and it is through your word that we continue to learn how to live, that we may exploit that freedom that you gave us spiritually at that moment of salvation. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you might help us to understand these things and to uh, recognize the principles that lie behind the various episodes in the text that continue 
throughout history and are just as real for us today as they were when the scriptures were written. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today is Memorial Day, or tomorrow is Memorial Day. It's Memorial Day weekend, and the purpose of Memorial Day was to set aside a time to remember those who had given their lives in battle in order to secure our freedoms. The observance of Memorial Day actually came out of the war between the states. There were various towns and have been various towns both in the south and the north who have claimed to be the place where this observance began. Uh, During the war, there is a clear record that there were those in small towns in the south where the ladies would go out on a, at a specific time in order to lay flowers or to decorate the graves of those who had fallen in battle. There's also records attesting this practice uh, in the north, and it was sometime after the war that this observance was recognized or set aside as a uh, national memorial day, or as it was originally called, Decoration Day. And then it was back in the 60s that the federal government passed a law setting aside various three-day weekends, and so we have our our current time and and practice. Last year on Memorial Day, which was May the 25th, last year being 2008, Major General John F. Kelly, United States Marine Corps, and the commander of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, Uh, gave a speech in Fallujah to the troops there. I would like to read just the first three paragraphs of that speech. I will email uh, the remainder of that out um, to you later today. It's a tremendous speech uh, to read, but too long for me to take the time this morning. He began, first, a few statistics to ponder. There are 25 million living American veterans. Since General George Washington commanded the Continental Army, 42 million Americans have served the colors. A million have been killed in its defense. Another million and a half wounded. When most of us think about military cemeteries, the first thought that comes to mind is Arlington National in Washington. But there are many, many more in the United States. Most Americans also don't know that there are 24 American cemeteries maintained overseas with 125,000 graves of our fallen. There are 61,000 in France alone, the result of two wars that saved Europe and the world from horrors unimaginable to Americans today. Unimaginable, that is, unless you are a veteran who have seen the terrible face of war, so those who remain safe in America and those yet unborn would never have to. There are also memorials overseas to an additional 94,000 Americans who were lost at sea or their remains never recovered from battlefields around the globe. With all this service and loss, we as Americans can be proud of the kind of people we are as we have never retained a square foot of any country we have defeated. We possess no empire nor have we enslaved a single human being. On the contrary, billions across the planet are today, and billions yet unborn live free because our veterans have fought and died. And once peace achieved, we've rebuilt, destroyed cities, economies, and societies. 
Memorial Day was established three years after our terrible civil war that finally established what kind of nation we would be, a war in which 600,000 young Americans north and south perished. For a century, the day continued to mean visiting and decorating graves or town square memorials to those who died serving our great nation and celebrating with parades and civic events. Americans kept the day quiet, pausing to remember at least for a little while the kind of men and women that they were who gave the last full measure and the immensity of their sacrifice, of the sacrifice they made for those who remained protected at home. Americans should not forget this weekend or any weekend as they relax with a few days off that the country is at war and a new greatest generation is fighting a merciless enemy on their behalf in the terrible heat of Iraq and in the mountains of Afghanistan. Like it or not, America is engaged in a war today against an enemy that is savage, offers no quarter, whose only objectives are to either kill every one of our families in our homeland or enslave us with a sick form of extremism that serves no God or purpose that rational men and women can understand. Given the opportunity to do another 9-11, our vicious enemy would do it today, tomorrow, and every day thereafter. I don't know why they hate us, and I frankly don't care, and they can all go to hell. But they do hate us and are driven irrationally to our destruction. The best way to fight them is somewhere else, and that is why we are here. For whatever reason they want to destroy our way of life and our countrymen at home should be on their knee, our, our, excuse me, for whatever reason they want to destroy our way of life and our countrymen at home should be on their knees every day thanking God we still have enough young people in America today willing to take up the fight as our veterans did from the earliest days of our nation. We are indeed blessed to live in this nation. We have a legacy of freedom that was bequeathed to us by the founding fathers who learned of their, learned their views of freedom and liberty from their forefathers. When this nation was founded, the, those who lived here primarily came from England. There were those who came from other nations, but the lion's share of the stock in the American colonies were from uh, Britain. They were English, they were Scots-Irish, and they had a heritage of spiritual beliefs that were forged in the fires of the Protestant Reformation. And it was in that Protestant Reformation that they had, they had learned to be willing to give their life for what they believed, for doctrines they believed in that today seem rather abstruse and irrelevant to many Christians, not to mention many unbelievers. And it was doctrines related to the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That when he went to the cross and took upon himself the sins of the world, he paid for those sins completely so that his death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty, the judicial penalty for sin. And that no human being 
no matter how good we might be, no matter how uh, moral we might be, no matter how uh, outstanding our service to other people may be, uh, there's a recognition that no human being can ever have, can never acquire, can never work up to the kind of righteousness that God demanded, a perfect, absolute Righteousness, one that conformed to his character, that he is absolute holiness, absolute righteousness. The scripture says he dwells in unapproachable light. He is absolute perfection, and in him no darkness dwells. And so no one who has been tainted by sin, which is at its very core disobedience or rebellion against God, the idea of doing what we want to do, what the creature wants to do, in contrast to what God has, uh, God has demanded, or that God has mandated, and so we are all tainted by that sin to the degree that Scripture says that we are spiritually dead. We are corrupt, and we can do nothing to please God. No matter what we touch, it is corrupt. So God had to provide that solution, and he provided it through sending his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross and to pay that penalty for our sins so that simply by trusting in him, by accepting that death on our behalf, by believing that what he did on the cross is sufficient for us, we can have eternal life. Because the scripture says when we trust in Jesus, God then gives to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we are saved not because of who we are, what we have done, and who we are and what we do never enters into the equation. We're saved simply because Jesus Christ's righteousness is ours, and on that basis, God saves us. That was known as justification by faith alone. It was first trumpeted by Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk in Uh, Germany in 1517, and that ignited a firestorm, a religious firestorm that spread throughout Europe as men and women were freed from the shackles of the legalism that had dominated uh, Roman Catholic theology for the last, for the previous thousand years. And they had true freedom. And the understanding of that true freedom, that spiritual freedom that we had in Christ, that we did not have to work to earn God's favor, that we did not work to earn God's uh, pleasure, that, gr- that salvation was a free gift, that it was in understanding that and working out intellectually as they studied the Bible, working out the implications of that freedom that we have spiritually and trying to understand how that then applied to political freedom, to civil freedom, to how man conducted his life socially, not only in the arena of, of his relationship to God, but also in the arena of his relationship to other human beings, that they began to understand what real freedom and liberty was all about. And it was in the latter part of the 16th century, the 1500s, as 
uh, as, as the movement that later became known as Puritanism that was an outgrowth of the theology, the Reformed theology of uh, John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, Henri Bullinger and others that it had its uh, root, it took root in England and in Scotland. John Knox in Scotland and numerous, numerous others, too many to name here in, in England. And it forged a movement in England, and of course, as some of you know from the study of history, the English Reformation didn't occur like the Reformation in France, Switzerland, or Germany. It had a interesting beginning because Henry VIII could not produce a male heir, and so he wanted a divorce. And the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't give him that divorce, And so he broke with the Roman Catholic Church, even though he had already received the title from the Pope, the defender of the faith. And since the Pope wouldn't give him freedom from his wife to pursue others to produce that male heir, he broke from the church. And you will hear from liberals that this was a, this was a political movement in England, not a religious movement. But there were already, by the time that occurred, there were already hundreds, if not thousands, of people in England who had read Luther and were beginning to read Calvin. And that the Reformation fires, the freedom of the gospel of grace alone, was already beginning to spread throughout both Scotland and England. And one of the consequences of the spread of that gospel and the understanding of the freedom that they had was in a political conflict that uh, inevitably led to slaughter on the battlefield. And the first place that that really occurred was in the Puritan Revolution that occurred in the early 1600s. And the context of that with the, with Oliver Cromwell leading the Puritan, the, uh, parliamentary forces against Charles I had its root in a challenge related to freedom and related to the freedom to worship between the Puritans and the um, the, the claim of the monarchy to be the divine, to have divine right to rule and they claimed absolute and total authority over everything even over the right to mandate what people should do, even if it violated the Scripture. And, for example, when the uh, Geneva Bible was first published, which was an English translation that came out in the uh, 1550s, and it was the popular Bible among the Puritans and among the Protestants in England, when the Geneva Bible came out, one of the things that made it so popular was it had explanatory notes in it. It was like a study Bible. And in those notes, especially in the first chapter of Exodus, where the Egyptian, I mean the Jewish midwives disobeyed the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's command was that, that the Jews had become too numerous, and so he wanted to uh, limit their uh, population growth. They were beginning to be feared by the by the Egyptians as becoming too numerous. And so he ordered the midwives who were aiding the Jewish women in giving birth to kill any, any male children that were born. And in this way, he was going to uh, instigate uh, one of the first known uh, systems of population control. 
But the midwives refused to obey the Pharaoh because the command violated God's standard of righteousness. And they instead would just tell the Pharaoh that, well, we got there too late. And so they gave an excuse for why they couldn't carry out his, his uh, mandate. What was interesting was that James I argued on the basis of the divine right of monarchy that that meant that the Pharaoh had absolute authority and those midwives were wrong and they should have killed the Jewish babies. The Puritans, in contrast, recognized that their deception was not necessarily correct, but that they were bound by the higher authority of God not to take the life of those infants. And that is just one instance of what set up this conflict over authority in the uh, British Empire over the extent of the authority of the king in dictating ethics to Christians. And that eventually led to the flare-up of the of the uh, Puritan Revolution that occurred under Cromwell and the uh, deposing and beheading of Charles I, and ultimately that, that revolution ended. But it was in the context of all of those historical events that our Puritan forefathers were forced to dig deeply and profoundly into the text of Scripture in order to answer questions about the extent of the authority of the king and the conditions under which it might be right or correct to overthrow the authority of a ruler. And it was in that context that Samuel Rutherford wrote Lex Rex. It was in the context of that background that you had John Locke later in the century, as well as others who wrote many of the things that they wrote on freedom and liberty and the extent of civil power. And that is the context. Those men were read by our founding fathers in America. They were influenced by those writings that took place over a period of 100 to 150 years that were forged in the uh, fires of persecution and battle. And so that gave them a framework based upon a biblical rationale for leading this country uh, against the tyranny that had developed from the monarchy uh, in England. And so that is the root and the foundation of our nation. And so we have a history of freedom that is ultimately grounded in an understanding of the Word of God and an understanding of the liberty that we have in Christ. That is our ultimate liberty because the ultimate tyranny that we face in life is the tyranny of the sin nature. Now, it has been some time since we have been in the book of Kings, so I want you to turn with me uh, in 1 Kings, and we'll just, just turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. We probably won't get into the chapter very far, but you're very close, very much, but you're close enough to what we're going to talk about that when we need to go to a couple of places, we can easily get there. It's been about two months. In fact, I got an email that came in through uh, the website the other day. Somebody said, I don't know what's happened, but nobody's posted any 
any lessons for First Kings in a couple of months, and and uh, I've been trying to find out what's going on. So I told him, I said, well, we took a little hiatus, and we are uh, we took a diversion after uh, e- after Easter to look at the resurrection of the gospel, but we were starting back in First Kings today, and so we are. But it's been a while. And we had shifted our study of First Kings from Tuesday night to Sunday, not long before uh, I stopped teaching it and shifted to the topic on resurrection. So I think we're in need of a little review. So let's uh, reorient our thinking here because we need to think through these, the things that are going to happen in First Kings 18 in light of the introduction I've just given and the history that lies behind the founding of the United States and the thinking that preceded that about authority. Because one of the things that will happen, we won't get there today, but we will next week, one of the things that happens in 1 Kings 18 is you have a man named Obadiah who is the, uh, uh, he is a chamberman to the king in the northern kingdom of Israel named Ahab. And Obadiah basically functions like a secretary of commerce or something of that nature. He is uh, very high in the chain of command in the uh, administration under Ahab. And Ahab is married to, as we know, the evil Queen Jezebel, who has been responsible for bringing this uh, horrible, perverted, depraved religion of Baal worship into the, into the northern kingdom. And she has sent out her uh, hit squads, uh, her Einsatzgruppen, as it were, in order to take out all of the believers that she can find in the northern kingdom, and especially all of the prophets. And at great risk to his own personal safety, Obadiah has disobeyed the authority of the throne. Because even though Jezebel's behind it, Ahab, she has Ahab's complete backing. And so Obadiah is going to put himself at risk and disobey uh, the tyranny of the king and queen. And he is going to hide some of these prophets. And he's going to feed them and bring them water and protect them so that they uh, will escape these hit squads that Jezebel has been sending out. In the land, and so one of the questions that we must address as we get into this chapter is this whole issue of tyranny and the question of authority, and when, if ever, is there a justified uh, basis for a believer to resist tyrannical authority, and on what basis do we uh, are we able to define? when an authority becomes out of line and becomes tyrannical. And so that is going to necessitate a certain background review for us. Now, I pointed out in our study of Kings that there's three basic divisions of First and Second Kings. First and Second Kings must be understood as one book. This was written as one, one book. Originally, it traces the history of Israel from the basically the death, the very end of David's reign through to the destruction of the southern kingdom uh, by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And so it begins in the first 11 chapters with a focus on the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom had three kings. Saul's reign is covered in Second or in First Samuel 
David's reign is covered in Second Samuel, and then his last days are in the first uh, chapter of First Kings. So it begins with the United Kingdom, the very end of David's reign and Solomon's reign. Saul, David, and Solomon are the three kings of the United Kingdom. Then the kingdom split. There was a tax revolt authorized by God from the northern kingdom. Ten tribes separated themselves from Judah and Benjamin in the south. And the history of the divided kingdom is seen in 1 Kings 12 to 2 Kings 17. covers a period of a little over 200 years. And then the last part of 2 Kings, chapters 18 through 25, covers the single kingdom of Judah after 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria and the people were redistributed among other populations. Now, in the next couple of slides, I'm just going to set up the dates roughly from 971 all the way through 586. But that middle period is the period we're focusing on here from 931 when you had the division of the kingdom to 722. And the episodes with Elijah occur about 60 years after the division of the kingdom, so roughly around 870, uh, 870 B.C., now, as we go into this middle section in 1 Kings, it focuses on the divided kingdom, we see that there are five basic sections. The division of the kingdom in chapters 12 through 14, the reigns of various kings that preceded Ahab are covered in 15 and 16, rather short, and covers a variety of kings, four in the south and eight in the north, including Ahab. Then in chapter 16 through 22, we have the focus on Rahab. That is uh, seven chapters. That is a big chunk of Scripture. And so that tells us that that's the focal point here is on this reign of Ahab. There's a lot to learn here, and there are many principles that we see here in the reign of Ahab on, on the Christian life that we can apply to the Christian life. There's many things that we can learn there about living in the midst of tyranny, living under a an evil government, uh, living in the midst of hostility towards believers and how God continues to protect believers even in the midst of a hostile environment. And then chapters 20, 22 through uh, the end of First Kings and the first couple of chapters of Second Kings, we look at the reigns of Jehoshaphat in Judah and the reign of Ahaziah in Israel. These are the kings that are covered in the in this section. We were introduced to Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, and Rehoboam reigns and is, is uh, followed by his son Abijah, who reigns for a couple of years, and then he is succeeded by his son Asa, who is a good king, and then Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is reigning in the south during the time that we're talking about uh, related to the, the time of Elijah. In the north, you have these, these eight kings, and in the northern kingdom there is uh, tremendous instability, as you can see, in a period of 60 years, approximately, they have eight different rulers. Jeroboam I was the 
one who God gave the privilege of leading the tax revolt under certain conditions, which we'll look at in a minute. Uh, he was followed by Nadab because he perverted his role, led the people into apostasy rather than obedience to God, and so his line was going to be cut off after Nadab. Nadab lives a, uh, reigns for a couple of years, and he's assassinated. And then he is then Baasha uh, seizes the throne, and he's another evil king. All the kings in the north are evil. Uh, he reigns, and then he is succeeded by his son Elah. God announces divine discipline on his house. Elah lasts a very short time before he's assassinated. And then you have the rise of Zimri and Tibni in a civil war that occurs in the north. And then Omri, a general, finally wins, wins out, and establishes a dynasty, a great dynasty in the north. And it is his son Ahab, who is the king during the time of uh, Elijah's ministry. Now, the question we ought to address when we look at this is how in the world did Israel get into this mess? How in the world did Israel fall from that position that they had at approximately 950 B.C., the heyday of Solomon's reign, when they were the greatest kingdom on earth, when they... Uh, g- controlled all the caravan routes that moved fr- through the Middle East, and with their alliance with the Phoenicians, they ha- extended that control to all of the uh, sea lanes and all of the commercial traffic. When Solomon is engaged in these incredible building projects in Jerusalem, building his his um, building his palace, building the temple, building fortifications uh, around the nation in order to secure their borders. And the descriptions of the amount of money, the descriptions of the amount of trade that went through Israel just boggle our mind. They lived in a golden age by 950. But this just is squandered. It falls away. And by the time you get to 70, 80 years later, the nation has split by a civil war, They have gone through, the northern kingdom at least, has gone through some terrible periods of of economic disaster, economic depression. They have been involved in in seeing uh, two different leaders assassinated. They've had three dynastic changes. They have had a civil war that lasted for approximately seven years, and they have... Uh, now, when they come to Ahab, they have seen that, a- that Omri engaged in an alliance with the Phoenician neighbors that brought a new bride to his son Ahab, who brought with her one of the most degrading, perverted religions of all time, the fertility cults of the worship of Baal and the Asherah. And so now you're living in an environment in the northern kingdom that is characterized by some of the grossest activities that we can come up with. In the Baal cult, there was uh, child sacrifice, burning children, infants alive on uh, altars, as well as engaging in ritual or cultic uh, prostitution in order to try to uh, motivate the gods to bring uh, fertility and prosperity to the northern kingdom. So the nation is in a tremendous mess. They are morally and ethically uh, depraved. 
and there is an overt hostility and antagonism to anyone who believes in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and anyone who is continuing to uh, trust and obey the God of their forefathers. So, as we ask the question, how did they get into the mess? The first answer is the syncretism of Solomon, the religious syncretism of Solomon. There's two things that we look at here, Solomon's uh, syncretism, his rejection of God's authority, but what goes along with that is also the people's syncretism. They are willingly led by Solomon in this uh, syncretism, and so the second factor has to do with the arrogance of the people. And we see the seeds of this arrogance much early in Israel's history. And so I want you to uh, turn with me to a chapter in 1 Samuel. I want to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to see the foreshadowing of the events that come with Solomon's fall uh, in God's warning to Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is a period before there was a monarchy. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is the end of the period known as the period of the judges. Now, the judges were not um, courtroom judges. They were not part of the uh, system of adjudication as we think of judges. They were sort of a combination of a military leader and a charismatic leader and also, incidentally, they would resolve conflicts between people, and so only in that way does it come close to, uh, to what we think of as a judge. The last judge was Samuel. Samuel was a judge. He judged Israel. He was also a priest, and he was a prophet. And in that role as judge, priest, and prophet, he is a type as he foreshadows the role of the Lord Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king rather than, rather than judge. And we're told that Samuel, as he became old, that the people were dissatisfied with, became dissatisfied with his role and that of his children. And his children were, even though he had made them judges over Israel, we're told in 1 Samuel 8.3 that his sons did not walk in his ways, they turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. See, there is a lack of integrity and a lack of virtue among his sons. And you cannot have order and stability in a culture, in a society, in a government, if it is not grounded upon uh, virtue and integrity. And when a nation's government succumbs to uh, bribery and succumbs to leading by self-interest, then the people suffer. And this is one of the marks that of, of uh, government that can be a part of, of tyranny. So it created chaos in the civil structure in Israel, and so the people look for a solution. But notice they don't look to God for their solution. They look to see how everybody else is doing it. Rather than looking at what God says, going to the Lord in prayer, going to Samuel and saying, 
uh, ask the Lord what should what we should do in this situation and how we are to go forward from here, they came up with their own solution apart from God and based on what everybody else was doing. And that is exactly what's going on in our culture. We see too many people in the uh, elite ranks of leadership in business, in the military, in politics, who think that somehow uh, Europe has a better way of doing it. Socialized uh, Europe, a Europe that has been uh, in post a post-Christian environment, since the 19th century, somehow we're looking there as our model and as our pattern. We have those in the judiciary who, instead of looking to our own heritage and the original intent of the founding fathers of this nation, instead of going to them to find out how to understand the Constitution and how to interpret the law, they are looking at international law and they are looking to see how other Nations have done it, and in that process, they are sacrificing our own heritage because they have a core belief that has rejected the foundation that gave virtue and integrity to the Founding Fathers, which is biblical Christianity. Well, you see the same pattern down through history that one generation wins freedom but the next generation doesn't have the capacity for it, and each generation has to win freedom for itself. And those that don't have the capacity for it will ultimately end up in slavery. Well, this is what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They come to uh, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you're old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this displeased Samuel uh, when they said this, and so he goes to the Lord. Verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people. And all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, don't take it personally. So we see that Samuel's a little out of uh, fellowship there because he's taking it personally in terms they're rejecting me. They weren't rejecting him, they were rejecting God. So God said, they haven't rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. This is the starting point. This is what foreshadows the problems in Israel is they reject the ultimate authority of God. Now, what else is going on in this time period is that we're coming out of a period of time known as a period of the Judges, and the key verse in the book of the Judges is that there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's repeated twice for emphasis. The Holy Spirit wants us to recognize that, and that everyone was doing right in their own eyes. It's not any different. The moral relativism that we have today did not come along with the publication of Situational Ethics by Joseph Fletcher. Moral relativism has been around since the fall, since Adam and Eve first decided to be the ultimate source of their own rectitude and deciding whether or not God was actually right in the way he defined the dangers of eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, uh, of good and evil. And so the people have rejected the authority of God. Once you reject the authority of God and an ultimate reference point, an eternal absolute by which all 
all things in life are evaluated, then everybody becomes their own authority. And all you have is a power struggle after that as to who is going to have the most power because it's not about genuine right or wrong anymore because an external reference point has been rejected. And once that happens, all you're left with is power plays. And that's what we've been witnessing in politics in this nation for at least the last 50 years, and it has gotten incredibly worse in the last 10 years. And the power plays that we see going on in Washington between the left and the right are too often characterized by people who are just seeking their own political uh, power base, and they no longer have a, a desire to truly serve the people, the desire that characterizes a true statesman. And so even the word statesman has been perverted as that's applied to these relativistic, uh, self-serving politicians that serve on the Potomac. It makes you really yearn. Even if you live in Houston where we have to have air conditioning, it just makes us yearn for the days when we didn't have air conditioning. You know, we really started losing our freedom when they could air condition Congress. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C. in the summer, you know that nobody wanted to meet in Congress through the summer. They wanted to adjourn, and if they're adjourned, then they can't pass laws. And so once they invented air conditioning and they could uh, air condition Congress, then they could meet all summer long, and the days of our freedoms were numbered. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, God tells Samuel to listen to their voice, and he says, however, in verse 9, You shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Now, this was one of those chapters that the Puritans, that the Protestants in England and in the continent went to in order to understand what God had to say about authority and about kingship and how uh, government should be run in a way that would honor God. And this warning is a warning that is just as true today as it was for Israel at that time. And so in verse 11, Samuel began to address the people. He said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariot. So he's going to uh, increase the size of the military and establish a standing army. Now, in order to pay for all that, he's going to have to tax the people. Uh, verse 12, he says, He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. Uh, he will set some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. So now the king is going to increase his land holdings, which violated the Mosaic law. And he's going to, the government now will have land and will have its own workers. So he's increasing the whole size of government. Now, you haven't heard anybody talk about that recently, I know. But see, that's what this chapter is warning against, is that if you get a king, the end result of this is that there's always a struggle between power, those in power, and those who have freedom. And so the desire here is, I mean, the, the point that is being made here is that you get a king and the natural course of events is that government will seek, seek to strengthen itself and 
enlarge itself, and this occurs at the uh, expense of the people. Verse 13, he's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He's going to build the whole bureaucracy and all of the uh, pomp and circumstance that goes with being a ruler. He'll take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. So taxation will increase. This goes above and beyond the 33% that you had in the Mosaic Law. Somewhere between 30 and 33%, you had three different tithes. So here he, God warns that he's going to take another 10%. So you're going to lose uh, 40% at least, maybe, and under Solomon, it was even much worse. Uh, verse 15, he'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. Sounds almost like the government's going to come in and steal from the people in order to make the government uh, government work, and it borders on that. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. Now look at that verse. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and look at that last phrase as it's translated. You yourselves will become his servants. Except that's a rather bland way of translating the last word in the verse. It is the Hebrew word, evid, which has as its first meaning in the Hebrew-Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, slave. That's its first meaning. It could refer to a slave or it could refer to a servant. But basically what this is saying is that the people will no longer be working for themselves. They will be working for the king. And the king will turn the entire country into his own personal workforce in order to pay off his debts and to buy all the things that will make his life more comfortable. And we see the same kind of thing going on today as we see the government bailing out all of these different uh, corporations and increasing the debt and increasing the size of the government's interesting in the private sector. We've seen uh, over two million jobs lost in just the last four months, but somehow the government has managed to add about sixty or seventy thousand jobs to its payroll. The government is increasing, but the private sector is decreasing. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Thomas Jefferson warned of this. He said, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and for government to gain ground. And so the warning that God gave to Israel under Solomon was that if they desired to have a king, then they would lose freedom, they would lose liberty, they would see their taxes increase, and they would lose, um, lose their possessions. And he warned them in verse 18 that you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. Isn't it interesting how people are willing to sacrifice their freedom for security? Francis Schaeffer warned of that. In the late 70s, he said, we are in a time when people are going to give up their freedom 
and give up their possessions simply for the illusion of security. And every I remember going to hear his uh, series when he was he appeared personally at Moody Auditorium at SMU in 19, I think it was 1978, and uh, predicted everything that has occurred, both intellectually, the moral relativism, everything that has occurred since then. I sat on the third row behind his family. Tommy I sat on my right, and Charlie Clough brought a group from Lubbock Bible Church and sat on the row behind me. Those were, that was a, a tremendous, tremendous series. You can still get that. Uh, it's still available on, on, uh, on DVD. But that's the problem. The people willingly give up, give up their freedom. Now, this comes true to one degree or another as the monarchy establishes itself and increases under Saul and David. But where it really goes to its, its ultimate fulfillment is under Solomon. And Solomon, though, has a heart for God, as we studied in 1 Kings chapter 4. He begins well, but he ends badly. He ends so badly that his reign is characterized as being evil because of his uh, acceptance and approval, recognition of all the false gods that his uh, wives brought in. This is seen in 1 Kings chapter 11. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after the Asherah, there are some footnotes that entered in there if you wonder what those extra letters are. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully. And the problem was a problem of smorgasbord religion. Everybody could just pick what they wanted to. The technical word is syncretism, and syncretism is defined as the attempt to assimilate differing or opposite doctrines and practices, especially between philosophical and religious systems, resulting in a new system altogether in which the fundamental structure and tenets of each have been changed. In other words, people just want to go around and say, I'll pick this out of Buddhism, and I'll pick this out of Hinduism, and I'll pick this out of secular atheism, and I'll pick this out of Christianity, and that's going to be my religion. And everybody comes, other person comes along, and they develop their own religion, and there's no external absolute. And without an external absolute, there is no basis for a solid ethics because ethics always grows out of your view of ultimate reality. Uh, ultimate reality is behind everything that we look at and everything that we study is our view of ultimate reality affects how we view knowledge and it affects our views of beauty Aesthetics and it affects our views of values and right and wrong. And we, when we live in a morally relative culture, then we cannot continue to uphold the kind of government that we have in this nation. That those who have given their life to uh, to defend uh, have given us. John Adams, 
who was one of those who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the first vice president of the United States and second president said, this form of government is productive of everything which is great and excellent among men, but its principles are as easily destroyed as human nature is corrupted. A government is only to be supported by pure religion of austere or austere morals. He understood that virtue and integrity undergirded everything, and for, for Adams, that could only come from Christianity. He goes on to say, private and public virtue is the only foundation of republics. They understood that the freedom that we have politically ultimately came from Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Paul said, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We are born enslaved to the sin nature. The sin nature's orientation is arrogance, and arrogance is the tyrant that rules the human heart and rules human history. But when men are set free from that tyrant by virtue of faith in Jesus Christ, and when men continue to develop the, their thinking based on what Scripture says, then they can exploit that spiritual freedom that Paul talks about in Galatians 5.1, and we can develop an understanding of true civil and social and political freedom. That's the heritage that we have. That's what we should remember on days like of national holidays like Memorial Day, Fourth of July, other holidays when we focus on our nation's history. But for us personally, the only real freedom we can ever know is never going to be determined by a government. It's never going to be affected by the tax policies of Washington or Austin or any other government. True freedom is a matter of our relationship to God through Jesus Christ, and we can all have that by putting our faith in Christ as our Savior, number one, and then exploiting that by studying the Word. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The truth is defined as God's Word. Jesus said, to the pray to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. So it is through a study of God's Word that we learn what real freedom is, and real freedom is freedom of the soul, that is not bound to the tyranny of our sin nature. And so that is one of the reasons why we are to be consistent in our study of the Word, consistent in Bible class, consistent in uh, applying the Word so that we can exploit that victory that Jesus Christ gave us at the cross that establishes our freedom with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, for this opportunity to look back in history at the trends that occurred in the history of Israel, the history of the northern kingdom, and what produced that uh, slavery of the soul that we see in the reign of Ahab. But we see that real freedom comes because of our relationship with you, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Real freedom is not that which we have politically, not that which is guaranteed in a written document of a government, but real freedom is that which was secured by Jesus Christ on the cross, that we could have eternal life.
because of who he is and what he did for us. And that when we believe in him, then we are freed from the power, we're freed from the uh, control, the tyranny of the sin nature. And then the issue is ours, as Paul says in Romans 6, we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to Jesus Christ, and to live as slaves of righteousness and not as slaves of the sin nature. Father, it's our prayer that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He had you in mind. He paid that penalty on the cross so that you don't have to do anything to gain God's love or to gain God's favor. Jesus Christ has done it all. All that's left for you is to accept that as a free gift, to believe that Jesus died for you, and that is it. Nothing else can help. Nothing else matters. Only faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this morning and that they would be a foundation in our own souls for integrity and virtue and for real soul freedom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.